the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us in another episode of Let Us Reason. I am your host, Al Fadi. And uh, we are so thankful for your uh, faithfulness and dedication to uh, pray for us, support us, and uh, track us. I receive a lot of your wonderful comments, and uh, I meet some of you also in person. So I am so thankful that uh, uh, this humble show is at least helpful to you uh, in your relationship with uh, our Muslim people and even some of you in your ministry. And you can always uh, go and listen to... uh, uh, the entire archive of this show from the beginning in October of 2014 until now at our website, sirainternational.com. Again, it's Sira, C as in Charlie, I, R as in Romeo, A as in Apple, international, one word, sirainternational.com. And uh, in there, uh, you'll come across the uh, Let Us Reason uh, archive, and also you can watch many of the other teaching videos, lectures, and uh, Uh, other things as well related to ministry among Muslims. And for the last two weeks, uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing a dear brother in Christ, uh, Dr. Dwayne Alexander Miller, uh, who is a researcher and a lecturer in the field of Muslim-Christian relations, uh, holds a Ph.D. in divinity from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, uh, even though he doesn't speak Scottish. But uh, I can tell you uh, I am uh, envious and jealous that he spent time over there I always liked Scotland's soccer team, uh, but uh, that will be a future thing for me to visit. Nevertheless, we've been talking about some exciting things that uh, the Lord has been uh, using him uh, through, whether it's uh, his Ph.D. dissertation, and the outcome of that was a book that just been published. You can go and uh, purchase a copy, whether you want a hard copy uh, or a Kindle copy uh, through Amazon, for instance. It's called Living Among the Breakage, and... um, Another thing we were talking about uh, has to do with his uh, interesting background uh, in ministry, where he spent some time uh, doing ministry in Nazareth uh, of Galilee, which is the hometown of our Lord Jesus Christ. And last week, uh, Dr. Miller was giving us an idea about uh, some of the things that he was doing in there and his involvement at something called the uh, NETS, or the Nazareth Evangelical Theological Seminary, which merged later uh, and became Nazareth Evangelical College in 2015. Uh, Dr. Miller, thank you again for giving us uh, some of your time. And um, if you can kindly uh, continue uh, giving us uh, your you know, feedback on uh, the status of Christianity in the Holy Land. Thank you, Al. I'm happy to be here with you uh, and your audience again. So... You 
know, this is the birthplace of Christianity. Um, I have a small silver cross, actually, so, so do my wife and, and my kids. And it's a St. George's cross, so that means it's uh, like the one on the, the British flag. Uh, but then it has four little crosses in each of the corners, uh, the upper right, upper left, lower right, lower left corners. And this is often called the Jerusalem cross. And if you ask the local Christians, what does it mean? Why does it look like that? The idea is that it is from that city that the Christian faith, the Christian message spread to the four corners of the earth. Um, unfortunately, though, even though historically that you know may be the case, uh, today Christianity finds itself in a very difficult spot in the Holy Land right now, if you look at the whole population, it's probably about 80% Jews, and there's a lot of variety in the Jewish population. Some of them are atheists, some of them are orthodox, some of them are very devout, others are not. Not all of them look like each other. Some of them are very fair-skinned with red hair and blue eyes, some of them are black, and they're from Ethiopia. So even in the Jewish population, there's a lot of diversity. And then probably about 18% of the population is Arab, uh, and of those the great majority are, are Muslims. There's also a small community of the Druze, D-R-U-Z-E, uh, and uh, Christians throughout the whole country form uh, maybe 1.9% of the population. In addition to Arab Christians, there are some other very small Christian populations. If you go to Jerusalem uh, and you go to the Old City, you'll know the Armenian Quarter is part of the city. So there is a small Armenian Christian population. There is a Coptic Christian population. Uh, Copts are the ancient people of Egypt, and uh, we had a Coptic church there in the city of Nazareth, and there is one also in Jerusalem. And the Copts are a different ethnic group than Arabs, even though uh, over the years many of them have intermarried, especially among the Christians. So, uh, and if we want to look at specifically evangelical Christians from different churches, you're probably looking at about 5,000 people. So it's a really uh, tiny number. Uh, is Christianity growing or shrinking? Well, for many decades, Christianity was shrinking because members from all these different denominations and churches were emigrating. Uh, they tended to be better educated, and to this day that's the same thing. Christians are among the best educated uh, portions of, of the population of Israel. So many of them were multilingual because they had gone to Christian schools where they also learned English, French, German, you know, fill in the blank. So they had an easier time emigrating. And of course, they had lived uh, in this difficult situation where uh, much of the Jewish population was antagonistic towards them because they were Arabs, mostly. And then much of the Arab population was antagonistic to them because they weren't Muslims. Now, this is not the sort of thing that you would see every single day, but, you know, you live in this kind of long-term uh, situation where you're treated as a second-class citizen. Uh, some people from the Jewish and the Arab side treat you very well and with respect, but, you know, you know that there's a good number of people on both sides that just don't want you there. And you have all of these uh, pilgrims coming from all around the world to Nazareth, you know, to the Church of the Annunciation where the angel told Mary that she was going to have a baby, to Bethlehem, to the Church of the Nativity where Jesus was born, uh, to Jerusalem, to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which in Arabic is Kenisat al You know, they don't call it the Church of the Grave, they call it the Church of the Resurrection, which is actually a lot better name if you think about it. That's right. Um, so, 
it, it's a tough situation. It's difficult. Um, but, uh, you know, praise be to God, the, the Christian population is, is holding on, but it, it's really struggling. And, uh, you know, there were vibrant Christian communities in uh, North Africa that are totally gone today. There are vibrant Christian communities in Anatolia and Central Turkey, which are totally gone today. And, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but one of the lessons of history is it could happen in the Holy Land, too. That is true, brother. Um, uh, if you can put your, um, uh, your finger on a pulse, uh, what would be one of the most major reasons why Christianity tends to decline in these areas, if, if you have an idea, at least, that you can pinpoint? Yeah, so for a long time it really was emigration. Uh, today, Christians, like the Christian population in Israel, it's steady, so it's not growing. But it's not shrinking either. Uh, Christians, because they're better educated, they tend to have smaller families. That's kind of a rule for people around the whole world. The better educated people are, they tend to have smaller families. So Christian families in Israel usually are one, two, three kids. Um, If you go to the Orthodox Jewish families, uh, five, six, seven kids, and if you go to many of the traditional Muslim families, because they the secular Muslims are not like this, but the, but the traditionalist Muslims, they do, they really do want, you know, the girl to finish high school and then get married and have kids right away. So, uh, you know, when a woman starts having children when she's 18, she's obviously going to have many more children than if she waits until she's, you know, uh, finished her master's degree and working and she's 28 or 30 or 35. Right. So uh, because of this, because of the demographics, as a percentage of the population, uh, it keeps on getting smaller and smaller. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's the reality. Um, yeah, certainly. Um, b- before I, I, I want to talk today really about a, a, an important topic, and that's the insider movement. But before I do that, I just want you, uh, I want to ask a couple of quick questions here. For instance, you know, uh, you know, yesterday I had a conversation with a Muslim seeker. And of course, right off the bat, uh, he started asking about the different denominations. So we're not going to get into this debate. But technically speaking, from your perspective, your background, yourself, your experience, if you can shed some quick light on the differences between Orthodox Christianity Catholicism, and Protestant Christianity. Mm-hmm. So the main church, the largest church in the Holy Land, is the Orthodox Church. Uh, the Orthodox Church is not like the top guy who kind of has a say in everything that goes on everywhere in the world. The Orthodox Church, it's a whole bunch of different regional churches, and, you know, Supposedly, the leaders get together. They haven't all gotten together since 787 to make decisions, so it's been a long time since they got together. Um, But the main uh, bishop, or the main head of the Church, is the Patriarch uh, in the city of Jerusalem. Now, most of the actual Christians are actual Arabs. However, the Patriarch of Jerusalem is always Greek. So you can go and meet, and, and most of the bishops, in the Holy Land, in Jordan, uh, they are, ethnically speaking, Greek. So a lot of them don't speak the language of their people, Arabic, very well. It's quite a fascinating uh, situation, and there are uh, different historical reasons for them, which, is, which are kind of complicated. Now, the clergy in the Orthodox Church can get married, the priests, but the bishops, they take all the bishops from the monasteries. So the bishops are all uh, celibate, single, unmarried um, but one of my best friends, uh, one of my best friends in Nazareth was an Orthodox priest. He was an Arab, and uh, our families would get together and do stuff together sometimes. 
Um, the Orthodox Church, the, the way of worship is very different. They look at Western Christianity, whether it's Protestant or Catholic, they kind of lump us all together. They tend to look at Protestants and think that we're just kind of like rebellious Catholics who are rebelling against mom, you know. Um, and the Orthodox Church is very tactile, so if you walk into an Orthodox Church, you're going to use all of your senses. You're going to smell the incense, you're going to see all the icons, you're going to hear things, you're going to light a candle, um, or people will do these things. So it really engages all the senses. And the purpose of the Orthodox liturgy is not kind of to teach people, which is a very Protestant thing, right, teaching. It's not to get people to feel a certain way, which a lot of American churches, that's the goal, right? You go there on Sunday so you feel better when you leave. So it's kind of therapeutic. That's probably not very biblical, but that's the way it is. But the purpose of Orthodox worship, of the Orthodox liturgy, is kind of to find this place where heaven and earth are merged together for a limited period of time. Uh, it's a beautiful theology, however, in terms of uh, pastoral care, you know, just taking care of the Orthodox Christians, uh, teaching them, uh, having Bible studies, and, and what we'd call, I guess, spiritual formation. Unfortunately, many of the Orthodox churches in the Holy Land do a very uh, lousy job, so a lot of the Orthodox have left for churches that do really invest more time in, in teaching and building up the local Christians, and, and that would be both the Catholic Church and different Protestant and Evangelical churches. Yep, thank you for mentioning that. Another interesting thing, of course, I, I can't pass uh, this up um, without uh, asking you, and that's uh, that you actually visited with Pope Francis. How was it like? That's right. Uh, so when I was teaching at the seminary in Nazareth, I was contacted by someone at Georgetown University, and they said, hey, we're, we've got this big, huge grant, we're doing this big program on uh, religious freedom around the world. And uh, we reached out to this one guy, and he said, I can't do it, but talk to this guy. So can you uh, go and do this kind of field work and research over in the West Bank? So not in, not in all the Holy Land, but just the West Bank. Um, and uh, tell us about the religious freedom of Christians over there. And I said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, so I did that with a colleague of mine, Phil Sumter. And together we, uh, you know, put together a paper. And then finally... We had this big colloquium in Rome, and it was at the Pontifical University, so it was actually in the Vatican. And all these scholars from around the world got together to talk about the religious freedom of Christians, and you know, throughout history, throughout the world. And so it, it was a big thing to really try to advocate for the religious freedom of Christians and try to inform people about it. And this was eventually published by Cambridge uh, in, in, a, in a big, fat book that's expensive. But... Um, so we were there in Rome, and my wife decided to go to Rome. She almost never goes to academic conferences, but she wanted to go to Rome. So we went to Rome, and uh, the Pope, Pope Francis, he heard about that, that there was this big group of scholars, and so he invited us, or had one of his people invite us, to what's called a personal audience. So we were ushered through all this, just the professors, just the ones who were doing the research and, and uh, giving a talk. And we were taken into the Sala Clementina, which is such an important room that it has its own Wikipedia page. And it's a beautiful thing. We waited around there for 30, 40 minutes, and then the Pope came in. He kind of shook hands with the main leaders, and we all took a photo together. His English is not very good, um, but he said, pray for me, pray for me. That, that, was, the, that was the main message that he had uh, to all of us. But I, I was just touched that here's this man who obviously has more important things to do, but he heard about 
uh, you know, these scholars uh, and, and ministers, too, uh, who were interested and devoted to highlighting religious freedom for Christians around the world. And he said, I, I want to at least meet those people briefly. That's interesting. So he asked you and the team to pray for him. Yeah, that's it. That's what he said. Very good. Very good. I'm glad uh, I asked you the question. That's a very important uh, note uh, here to uh, make. Um, with that said, uh, in, the, in the time that is left here, I would like to dive into a very important topic, which I invested a lot of shows on, uh, which is the insider movement. But the fact that you were in the Holy Land, I'm sure uh, you can speak about what is known as Messianic Jew. And lately, I've been hearing a lot of these terminologies that are there, uh, that Insider Movement tries to uh, utilize, uh, calling some people of my background Messianic Muslims. In fact, they even, um, one of them went to the extent of distinguishing me from the Messianic Muslims, stating that I am a renegade Muslim uh, who left my heritage, and uh, I should have really uh, uh, came to Christ through the Insider Movement approach. But that's a different story. Can you uh, uh, shed some light on this uh, very sensitive issue for us, in terms of identity, at least? Sure. You know, in Nazareth, it's, it's an Arab city, but of course, Israel, the whole country is like the size of New Jersey, so I've been all over the place in that country, other than Gaza, because it's run by Hamas, which is not a great place, to not very safe to go for a lot of people. Um, so I, I met a lot of Messianic Jews. Uh, my wife uh, was part of a choir that uh, was formed of many Messianic Jews, even though we're just boring, you know, white Christians. Um, so, I, you know, that's definitely a topic that I got to uh, engage and, and learn a lot about over in the Holy Land. I think there's a real difference, though, between the idea of the Messianic Jew and the Messianic Muslim. L- let me note that actually in Israel, a lot of Jews are very antagonistic to the idea of Messianic Jew. You know, they'll look at someone and say, okay, you know, fine, you want to become a Christian, let's just call the spade a spade, and, you know, we're not going to be happy about it, but just become a Christian, it's fine. You know, just at least be honest about it. You want to not be a Jew, you want to be a Christian instead, in terms of religion, go ahead. Don't go calling yourself a Messianic Jew. I've noticed the same thing a lot uh, in in my travel and research among among Muslims. They're like, yeah, you know, we're not happy when people leave Islam for Christianity, but at least be honest about your words. So that's not that's not my critique, but that's definitely a critique that I've heard, and I think it's really worth listening to. Um, you know, it's not up to Americans to define the word Muslim. Uh, it really is up for each religious community to define who is in and who is out. Uh, you know, Christians, we don't like it when someone says, oh yeah, you know, Mormons, they're Christians. We're like, you know, Mormons, they may be fantastic people, but they don't believe in the Trinity, so that right there is a deal-breaker. That's right. Uh, we want to define the own boundaries of our community, and, and because we want to do that, we should respect Muslims to do the same thing for themselves and uh, not try to impose a foreign vocabulary on, on That's right. you know, these things. And, of course, the other problem with that is, you know, Muslims are already Messianic. Muslims believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so just on a grammatical base, you know, al-Messiah, al-Mashiach in, in Hebrew, uh, these are cognates, Messiah, Mashiach, they, you know, they, they sound the same even. Uh, you know, Muslims already believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So, I mean, technically, grammatically, all Muslims are Messianic. So, it, is, it seems confusing to me. 
Absolutely, and uh, it's really heartbreaking, uh, brother, when, uh, like I said, um, uh, this is uh, the person that I refer to comes from a very prominent uh, uh, evangelical organization. I, I don't want to even mention the name because people will even believe me uh, that uh, someone from that organization would say something like this, but in his view, is making distinction between those who come from a Muslim background and don't call themselves anymore Messianic Muslims and those who are Messianic Muslims, as if... There are different degrees, uh, basically, in terms of how the Lord is going to reward us as a result of this. But, but I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this, brother, because it is really frustrating to me that uh, the, the, the point of the insider movement usually is uh, the idea that Westerners really meddled with the Middle East and uh, there is colonialism and there is a lot of hurt and now it's time for Christ to heal this. Yet they impose, impose what I call actually spiritual colonialism on Muslims, imposing ideas, imposing theologies, imposing identities. And what is so troubling to me is that they don't listen to former Muslims like myself. Uh, We are actually considered to be outsiders. It's almost like shaming us uh, for not following their own uh, line of thinking. So um, I just wanted to bring it up, brother, from, uh, you know, I know that uh, you have uh, studied uh, uh, the area of identity and you sure... Uh, for sure, you came across things like this. Um, we still have. I, I think. Can, can I raise another issue about that just briefly? Yes, sir. I think, absolutely. You know, grown Yeah, grown ups are really used to handling different identities. It's something that we get used to as grown ups. Um, you know, like okay, when I'm at work, I act like this. When I'm at church, I act like this. When I'm with my family, I act like this. Now, hopefully, there's a kind of core identity that's authentic there. Uh, but you know, children don't know how to do that. So I, my question is, what's going to happen to the children? You know, true, uh, true, you're going to say, true. well, you know, you're a Muslim, but really you, your, your doctrine is like a Christian doctrine? Like, okay, again, grown-ups are used to juggling identities. That's something that we all do. But children don't know how to do that. So I, I just don't see how, just on a sociological level, let's leave behind, let's leave behind theology and Bible for a moment, I just don't see on a sociological level how this can actually be something that lasts more than one generation. So I agree. That, that, that's a question I've never heard anyone talk about it, but it's a question I always have when I when I look at the material and, and when you know yeah. when I read it. I've also I've always been looking for one of these communities. I've done research all over the Middle East, and I always go in and say, "Take me to an insider community. I want to find one of these groups, not so I can tell them they're wrong, but just so I can try to understand them and learn and study them." And you know, uh, but I, I've never I've never found one. Yeah, you know, oh. brother, it's it's the biggest secret on earth. Um, we all ask the same question, and somehow we're not allowed to contact this particular group. But it's a big money maker. I can tell you that much. So uh, let's move on to another uh, topic uh, that is also relevant to my people. Like in Saudi, for instance, there is no church. And one of the stumbling block for many of the Saudi students and, and the Saudi seekers is that, okay, so if I come to Christ and become a Christian, they, they call themselves that usually, um, there is no church to worship. So I'm not really fully Christian yet. You know, historically, was there a church actually uh, uh, at the beginning of Christianity? And uh, how did that come about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so what is today, Saudi Arabia, was never uh, thoroughly evangelized, but I would just point out to them that there are historical Christian roots there. For example, we know the Christian uh, group from Najran came to see Muhammad to try to make a pact, which didn't work out. Um, we know that uh, Al-Waraka, uh, right, that guy, 
We know that he was from some sort of Christian church. We know that the Ethiopian Christians uh, welcomed in and took care of the Muslims. So I would say, yeah, you know, it was not thoroughly evangelized. That's a problem. That's something to be sad about. I wonder what would it have been like if Muhammad had actually encountered Scripture in Arabic that he could understand. That's right. Um, what would it have been like if there was a vibrant Christian community there in the city of Mecca or in the yes, city sir. of Medina? Because neither of them had indigenous Christian communities. Amen. Uh, so I would say take heart. Take heart. You know, something new is happening. It's never happened before. Uh, but every culture that you look at and think, oh, that's a deeply Christian culture, whether Italy or Ireland or whatever, uh, you know, it, at one point they were just like Saudi Arabia. Uh, some of them even worse, because they had human sacrifice in Ireland. So. Yes, so yes, they, they, they were worse off. Dr. Miller, um, it was a joy uh, to have you, and uh, I would love really to explore the possibility to do more with you, uh, to continue uh, exploring deeper and deeper some of your research findings and even the article about the number of converts. Um, uh, those of you who are uh, listening uh, or even joined us right now, this is Let Us Reason. I'm your host, Al Fadi, and I had the uh, privilege of interviewing a dear brother, Dr. Dwayne Alexander Miller, which you can go to his blog, Dwayne Miller, D U A N E, Dwayne Miller dot WordPress.com, to enjoy uh, reading about many of his um, uh, articles and research and uh, his uh, brand new book. That has just been published as well. You can get that on Amazon, Living Among the Breckage. Uh, Dr. Miller, thank you so much. And those of you who are listening to us, have a blessed week. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.